Welcome back to another episode of The Life of Brian. Brian, how are you? Yep, looking forward to our special guest, Greg Hoy, one of Melbourne's leading orthopaedic surgeons, coming shortly. Yes, did you miss me last week or didn't even notice? Not really, didn't notice even notice you were gone. No, you yeah. weren't missed at all. No yeah. one commented about you or anything, so. Oh, no worries. I thought I was an integral part, but anyway, we'll move along. No, you're, just, um, you're just a minor part. Other than Greg, we've got a few things to cover. We're going to do some updates of where you've been at and what you've been doing yep. and also chat a little bit of footy. Yep. Um, first of all, you've been to a few weddings the last few weeks. You had the Grimley's wedding, Sam Grimley. Yes. Um, how, how was that? That was a four-day extravaganza. We hired a, uh, what do you call it, a camper van thing, you know, one of the big yep. uh, buses sort of thing. And uh, we slept in that. That wasn't the best sleep I've ever had. But anyway, we got out there on the camper van because it was a four-day wedding. Who the hell has a four-day wedding? The Grimleys have a four-day wedding. That's it. It was a festival of, not a wedding. It was extraordinary. It was like a mini festival. Glamping tents, bloody buses, uh, big, just magnificent. Big expensive wedding, or is it a rather oh, a modest affair? No, it wasn't modest. It was. It was. Uh, I won't say it was over the top. It was just unbelievable. And a few stars getting around. Who hosted? Oh yes, a rough, uh, a rough uh, Joe Roughhead. He hosted. He was the MC of the night. Um, and there were many Taylor Jeray, who I think was in the wedding party, along with uh, was Benny Stratton in the wedding party. I think he's from, a good mate uh, of Sam's. I'd assume good so. mate of Sam's yep. as well. So a whole host of those Hawthorne group that where Sam played some footy, and I think Zach Merritt was there as well yeah. from Essendon. So and Dylan Buckley was Dylan Buckley was there, was... of course. Podcast fame. Dylan Buckley, Buckley, I won't yeah, say footy fame, but the uh, founder of Producey and Clubby yep. Sports, who are brought to you today uh, mm-hmm. by. So uh, I'm confused with what their identities in terms of they've got Producey and they've got Clubby Sports and they've got some other things. You yeah, know, that much shit happening. Run Clubby, here. did I... they just put Y on the end of everything and call it theirs? <laughs> that sounds like they do. I can't keep up with them. I, th- I think he's ahead of himself. He doesn't know where he's going. No, I don't. I don't mind it, and I don't mind him. He's he's a good man. Um, the other wedding, which I'm sure had uh, more action in terms of the celebrity uh, realm, is JB's wedding over Ooh, in Perth. That was some time ago now. That was that was a great wedding. JB, well, we all had to travel to Perth. JB made us to travel to Perth on a weekend when Coldplay were playing exclusively in Perth. So what are we talking for an economy so, seat? So we're talking quadruple the airfare of a normal time, quadruple the accommodation bill, um, because Coldplay were only doing that concert in Australia and then we're all there and happy. But when I got to that wedding, most unbelievable wedding, great with Lisa and JB, um, you know, uh, it, it was just beautiful at Cottesloe there and um, the ceremony was great and all of that. Everyone spoke very, very well. Um, I got to meet on the lawns just prior to the ceremony my child, one of my childhood heroes, Dennis Lilly. Wow. Really? And, you know, sometimes they say don't meet your childhood hero, you'll you'll be disappointed. I wasn't disappointed. He was every bit that I thought he was, the great DK Lily. Unbelievable. Um, just a few of the names. Not name dropping, but it was the cricket who's who. So uh, I spent time with Adam Gilchrist, Justin Langer, Brendan Julian, Tom Moody, Mark Taylor, the list just went on and on of the, and all these heavyweights. You were well out of your depth with the cricket I was, conversation? I was out of my depth with the cricket conversation, but I enjoyed speaking. I didn't realise that Mark Taylor, coming out of Wagga, New South Wales, was such a uh, an AFL fan, of which he is, more so than, I think, the rugby league. So that surprised me. Um, the knowledge of these cricketers of football was 
was high. Their their standards were high. So I really enjoyed talking to them all. Loved loved talking to them all. But you know, Justin Langer was fantastic. Um, uh, Tom Moody was was really good as well. There were some lessons. Was, was there a best on in terms of fun and vibe? Um, best on. They're all really good. Worst on was Jay, one of JB's sons. He uh, he was going around <laughs> back slapping everyone. And I think I, I heard I think I heard Justin Lang, Langer mutter, "If he slaps me on the back one more time, I'm going to punch him <laughs> he, in the gut." He was champion <laughs> Justin yeah. Langer, was he? He was just excited. Yeah. He was very excited for his dad and uh, Lisa. And the biggest head wobbler. Um, biggest head wobbler. Well, Gil McLaughlin was the MC. Yeah. And I was a bit shocked, actually, a bit put out because I knew I hadn't quite got the dress code right. The dress code was a Melfi Coast. What the fuck does a Melfi <laughs> Coast, what does it mean? So I went with a button-up short sleeve shirt with a pair of chinos and uh, some loafers with no socks. Well, the Melfi Coast is well, a coastline in Italy, so you, you well, rock the fedora, some sandals. When uh, McLaughlin got up to MC, he gave me a boring for five minutes about my, being the worst dressed person there. I felt shit out. Well, it's about time you got it, Servi, because <laughs> it's usually the other end. Anyway, it's a great wedding. Yeah, moving on. Um, so you're a committee member of the Angling and Aquatic Club down in Lawn. Also yeah. known as the A Team, they had their yes. annual general meeting, at the AGM, a couple of weeks ago. Yes. How did that go? Went well. Why? Oh no, I'm just asking. It's strange that you're on a committee at an angling club, and considering that you don't like being in boats because you get seasick. Well, I do like what do you being. Do there? In, I'm a boataholic, but I just don't like rough seas. So, so you don't like going out, water ski or whatever. But I'm, I, you know, I'm just there on the committee, just uh, contributing to the local community. This is a very important club for the local lawn community. And I feel that I can assist in some way, shape, or form. I haven't found in what way, shape, or form yet, but I'm still there. Yeah, so you're a sort of an absentee committee member. Yeah, I, I haven't been to many meetings this year. Let's put it, it that way. It was their biggest year this year, apparently, financially. They they gave away... Well, they're fighting for survival. The the, the bloody uh, Gore Coper, whoever runs the coast down there, are trying to knock the place over. And, and re-plant it somewhere else? Plant it somewhere else, if at all. But... In the end, uh, we, uh, we we need a bit of a fighting fund because we're going to be up for legal costs. We just want to save the building. Anyone that's been to Lawn knows it's right near the pier. It's that it's little iconic. old building there. It's yeah. iconic. Near the pier. The community love it. It's well supported. It has more members than any other club in Lawn or along the coast for that matter. And people love it. And why the hell we want to rip it down and put a concrete building there, I'll never know. Here's a couple of little stats for you or financial figures. They gave away $6,000 in free sausages this year, last financial year, yep. and they gave away over 30 grand in raffles to charity. Yeah, they give away they do the raffles and they donate it to local charities. They support local people. It's a non-for-profit organization. Yeah, they yep. support local people in need. They do all the right things for the community. This is a community club that supports the community. We have other community clubs in Lawn. I don't know whether you want me to name them or not that perhaps don't support the local community and are and can be regarded as elitist. <laughs> Hello, Surf Club. <laughs> you're you're going to name them? Um, <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Uh, moving on, um, still staying in the life update uh, realm. So Billy, who we spoke about probably a month or two ago now, who helps you on the – Billy Brownless. No, Billy, the um, y your help. 
my, 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 my sort of help gardener. Yeah, yeah. So you can maybe reintroduce who he is. He's a bit of, bit aloof, but tries really hard, and you're sort of giving him a second chance. Yeah, it's just to say he's, let's say he's reforming at the moment. Yeah, well, we're in summer. Yeah. Um, this was in spring a few weeks ago, but fire restrictions are in place. Well, I you're- gave him a very simple job. I start them at the lowest just to make see what they can cope with. So don't put someone on the end of a chainsaw or a lawnmower if they can't handle it. So I thought that one of the first jobs he could do for me was the job that you hated most on the farm was pick up sticks because all my kids the rake out. have become good at picking up sticks because that's all I ever asked them to do because I like a smick property. I asked Billy to pick up sticks and rake some leaves. I said, Billy, this will be the job you can start with. You can't possibly fuck this up. <laughs> all you have to do is go out, look for sticks, rake the odd leaf into a pile, and uh, that's all you have to do, Billy. And I was there this day. And I'm looking out the... I'm looking out the uh, dining bloody room window, and and this is only a couple of days ago. Remember, fire restrictions yep. are now in force, and, and it's we been are dry. We it's dry as hell, and we are in a we're in a, a hot zone, the Otways. It's like going to burn down one day, so you just got to be careful. And I look out the window, and remember, his instructions were to pick up sticks, make a pile, and uh, pile up the leaves. I see fire. I see smoke rising. Plumes of, plumes of smoke plumes coming across the large, horizon. <laughs> thick plumes of smoke that are drifting over to lawn. And I'm thinking, shit, a fire brigade are going to be here any minute yeah, the moment they see this. If, if, if fire restrictions are placed, you've yeah. got to declare that you're lighting up. Well, no, you're not allowed to light. You've oh, got right. to have a permit. You're not allowed to light at a all. Yeah, yeah, Someone yeah. like me, I wouldn't get a permit. They wouldn't yeah. allow any burning off. Oh, no. So I've had to rush out there with the, uh, well, buckets of water. And put out the bloody fires. Give talk about give someone a simple task and and stuff it up. He'll be back again next week though. Well, he's he's getting down towards his last chance, but you know, <laughs> this is Billy the gardener. Billy, Billy's a hello star. To Billy. Yeah, hello, Billy. Yeah, he's if a you're listening. Bloke. Um, moving on. So, a couple of footy things. Um, you just wanted to touch on briefly the media frenzy that has come about over some very minor injuries in preseason training. Yeah. Talking Harley Reid, Dustin Martin. Yeah. So Harley Reid. At training, and I saw the vision, bumps into someone, and you could see him go, ah, and he's sort of half laughing and half in a little bit of very temporary pain. He got a corky, right? That's effectively what the injury was. Now, the West Australia, and I saw Adam Simpson, his meter comes, going, mate, everyone settle down. He's got a corky because of the number one draft pick, Harley Reid, blah, yeah. They've turned it into this massive. You know, superstar, young kid, injured. No, he's got a corky, mate. Uh, They've just got absolutely nothing else. And they turned this into a media frenzy. There were reports for the next 24 hours on how Harley Reid's corky was going. He He was laughing about it. It was one of those things where you get a, you know, like a kick in the shin and you go, ah, that hurts, but I know I'm all so right. So why is this a story? Why do we care? Why we do we care? I know. This is, this for me is laziness in the media. Now, there's another example. Um, in Wonthaggy, I think, Richmond have been down in Wonthaggy or that area training. Um, I think down there somewhere. Um, yeah, well, Gibson. Inverloch. Yeah. Inverloch. Wherever it is. And Dustin Martin gets a little nick on his face that requires one or two stitches. Do you know... The next day, that was on the front page of the Herald Sun and the back page. For a couple of stitches, for a minor knock, they said, oh, a concussion. No, he was back training the next day. There was no, absolutely nothing wrong with him. And I put this down to the Herald Sun 
Um, all of the media agencies have sent people down to cover Richmond training down there. There's not much. So they've got to come up with some story. They've got to do something. So they turned the Dustin Martin two stitches in the bloody face there somewhere. It was barely a, a graze. I mean, an ant would have made more more of an indentation in his face than and 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 we're supposed to sit there and think that this is real news that's actually happening. I have been blown away by how incidental both of those things were and how the media a lot they've of they've got to report on something. They've so got they to report just, on something. Just, just re- do nothing. Just do a report on them training down there. Yeah. Uh, Richmond have wowed the Wamthaggy people or the yeah. Inverloch people or wherever they were. Richmond have have um, gone to visit local hospitals and done uh, some yeah. really good deeds in the community. Or Richmond trained ferociously today, um, yeah. you know, in front of uh, half the town. That doesn't get the clicks though. Don't the make up some injury as if Dusty Martin's going to miss the next six months yeah. or Harley Reid's and have everyone hanging for 12 hours because they actually don't get how the media works. I thought it was I thought it was really ordinary in both cases. Yep. Next one, um, AFLW Grand Final. Um, obviously, big result. Brisbane yep. sort of got the monkey off the back and, and won one. North Melbourne were leading late. But we wanted to talk about the location because there was a little bit of a kerfuffle around why isn't it at a bigger stadium in, in Melbourne? Close game, good game. I did hear a little bit of talk about why wasn't it at Marvel. You know, the AFL own it. This is the AFLW grand final. So it's not a bad talking point. Um, I think the motocross had been, the World Motocross Championship had been on the week before, so the ground would have been terrible. It wouldn't have been one. It would have been your, covered in dirt. Yeah. yeah. Well, they'd yeah. removed all the dirt, but the boards were down for, I think, five or six days. So, so it, it wouldn't have looked nice. It wouldn't have been good and it wouldn't have been a great surface. The other thing, so that's point one, surface wasn't in great nick. Point two, I would say that I love the fact that Icon Stadium is full rather than Marvel being one-third full. Um, I prefer to see Icon full and five or 6,000 people miss out on getting to see the grand final. That's the way I view it. So I think the, the, the right decision was to have it at Icon. Beautiful. Good close game, great game. Well done to uh, Brisbane, Craig Stasevich, former 1990 Premiership uh, mate, and uh, well done. Greg Hoy's arrived, our guest. Come in, Greg. Greg is a orthopaedic surgeon specialising in shoulder, upper limb and hand surgery. How did we get you in here? Is this not an operating day? Uh Friday is my uh, consulting day and then my home duties day. Orthopedic surgeons, I'm always staggered. They are so busy. Why is it so hard for people to get to see not just arm, shoulder, but all orthopedic surgeons? I think orthopedic surgery has been like many specialties, one that's grown a lot. The opportunities for how to improve people has grown a lot but the profession hasn't grown at the same pace. Right. So one of the problems we have is that uh, governments can only afford to train so many people and whatever that number of people is is probably not keeping up enough with the explosion in, in options for people to get rid of pain and improve function. Because it's a lot – I mean, I was looking through your, your history, I think 17 years to get the work under you before you became an orthopedic – there's it's a fair, fair background to it. it, isn't it? Were mm. you a GP or something before or what did you... No, so uh, I, I um, 
drifted a little bit because I did sports medicine as a trainee uh, whilst I was doing some of my orthopedic training. So I've always enjoyed sports medicine. And in fact, I eventually became dual qualified. So I have a sports medicine qualification. But uh, orthopedics was my passion. And uh, I, I recall very much an evening dinner with uh, Gary Zimmerman, who is a yep. colleague of mine, who's a Bulldogs club doctor. And Gary and I sat and talked about what we do. And Gary said, no, nah, I'm going to go down the sports medicine path. And I said, no, nah, I'm going to go down the orthopedic path. So uh -huh. we sort of... So that uh, was a conscious uh, decision. We made a conscious decision at that time. Yeah. Where were you studying? Well, where did the that wasn't study. That was working. But yeah. as a resident, I was at the Alfred Hospital. Yeah. Um, I was a student and resident at the Alfred Hospital. So I was sort and of part of the furniture there. Prior to that, where would you have done? I studied at Monash. Monash. Um, and I was a school student at Trinity so yep. all of this has led to, Harrison, I know Greg will be a little bit embarrassed about this, but in my opinion and, and the opinion of, of my world, that is the football world and the, and the sporting world, um, Greg's probably one of the best orthopedic surgeons in the world and certainly concentrating and specialising on the shoulder sort of down, um, the arm. Uh, That's that, a big call. That, that is a big call. I don't think it's true. But it, this is the reason why it's it's hard to get to see people like yourself. It, it is true because – I'll tell you why it's true, Greg, because the sporting world, the professional sporting world and the amateur sporting world has gravitated towards people like yourself in, in these specialised fields, but particularly you, to get fixed quick. Now, if Harrison does his shoulder, you can send him home and say, don't do anything for six months, just go and do some slower – but the, but the athlete, you know, the Wayne Carey, he wants to go and play this weekend. Yep. So your work is always at risk and on show. Does that worry you? Uh, you've got to get rid of that worry. Um, you can spend time worrying about what outcomes are all, all your life, but really it comes to your philosophy of the way you treat people. Um, I once did a little case report many years ago on an interesting chap uh, who was a rugby league player who came down to Melbourne and he already had a rotator cuff tear in his shoulder but he was just playing through it. And then he got an unstable shoulder uh, in the early part of the season. And if he'd had everything fixed, he would have missed the grand final. And they were right in their window oh. at the time, uh, in Melbourne Storm. So, so we uh, fixed his instability but left a rotator cuff tear alone. Now, I presented... This is a case overseas, and the Americans laughed as, or not laughed, but but they decried uh, the treatment. I should have fixed everything at once, but my philosophy is you've got to look after the career goals of the person that you're with, and that comes from my sports medicine background. Right. You know, because uh, 20 years later, that person might have that as the crowning glory of their career, and so it's very important that you remember who you're treating. So if I'm treating a businessman, he has to get back to work as quick as he can to write, but doesn't have to get to work as quick as he can to use his shoulder or, or, yep. or throw or do some other activity, then I do what's necessary to get him back to work right. quickly. Yep. And for an athlete, back to work quickly as an athlete, yep. is, is athletic games. So Harrison, Greg has worked on many of our greatest sports people uh, and confidentiality obviously is an issue in the medical world so we've just got to be careful the way we talk about that but those have been talked about publicly and there are many of them. I, you know, Shane Warne comes to mind, Daniel Kowalski, we were talking to you before about the Kieran Perkins era and that particular race but treating these stars and that, that's just a small portion of who you treat. Are you there treat... any others that you can mention? Oh, there's Russell Crowe, was there? Prop... The actor? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Treated Russell over this. He, he uh, hurt his shoulder while he was training for Cinderella Man. Yeah. Pat and, Rafter. Uh, uh, 
Pat's been an old patient, yes. Muralitherin, the former best spinner yes. in the world. Yeah. Uh, there's a whole host of these people. These are I've some been, big. These are the biggest athletes in the world. Yeah. Well, I've been lucky with uh, having to treat them. I, I, I think that the way you treat them, I mean, the, the technical way you treat them is probably not that special. My, my philosophy about surgeons is that probably 80% of surgeons have the same level of technical skill as each other. Okay. And 10% are pretty crap and 10% are, are gifted. But the decision-making is what really separates a lot of surgeons. You can have a very gifted surgeon, but he does the operation on the wrong patient. It's not going to work. <laughs> so it's so, like the mechanic. So the mechanic, he yeah. can, you know, like fixing a car, there are, there are excellent, good, not so good and bad depending on those decisions that they make. Yes. The diagnosis, for instance. Absolutely. You make the wrong diagnosis and then have surgery, you're in trouble. Wrong diagnosis, but also wrong situation. I think sometimes you've got to be situationally aware of of, uh, what you're doing so that uh, what is the right thing for one person is not the right thing for another person. Which sports dominate your practice of shoulder, arm, fingers? We live in Melbourne. AFL footy. AFL footy. So AFL footy's dominated my practice over the years. Um, From all of those, shoulder, arm and fingers? All of them. Yeah. All of them. Um, Certainly uh, early in my career, uh, there weren't a lot of sports surgeons around. So, uh, you know, I was was lucky that a lot of people gravitated towards the people that were available and, and they talk about being available, so I had to sacrifice things. So uh, if you have this conversation with my wife, that would be a slightly different conversation. <laughs> um, but the fact is that uh, if you can uh, put up with the imposition on your private life, uh, there's a lot of rewards to treating athletes who want to get back uh, to sport as quickly as possible. They want to, what are some uh, of those? to perform at the highest level. And there's a satisfaction in doing that. Yeah. It must be incredibly satisfactory to get to see an athlete of prominence um, obtain his goal by you being able to help him get there through some injury. That's very true. That's very true. I think there, it has to be counted a little bit. And one of, one of my colleague surgeons at one of the public hospitals I worked in years ago uh, said to me, now all you jock surgeons, implying all the people that treat sports, <laughs> um, you're only as good as the last person you treated with the implication that maybe there's a relationship between the quality of the athlete and the quality of the surgeon, which is not true. The yeah. fact is uh, you've got to do the best you can and and you hope and uh, and make sure as much as possible that you do the best job that's available so, yeah, for Harrison, that athlete. I think Greg's balls are on the line. Every time he does one of these high-profile cases, you know, it's for public display. They want to get back earlier than anyone else has ever got back. They always want to break the records. And that all, you know, and Greg's got to be the guy behind mm. that. And if but there's there's a downside to that too. And certainly, one of my previous colleagues, who's no longer with us, was involved in an AFL player who had a, an ACL done. That's a knee reconstruction, and uh, he came back faster than everybody else. But then he redid it yeah. because he came back too quick. Yeah. And you know that was pretty soul destroying for both the the athlete and the surgeon. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, I remember a whole lot of press going around at the time and have we gone too far and are we doing it too quick? I can remember that too, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Tell us, we were talking off air before about um, Daniel Kowalski. For those that don't know Harrison, your age group, uh, Daniel was a world-class 1,500-metre swimmer in the era of Kieran Perkins. It was a great 1,500-era in Australian swimming at that particular time. He went into the Olympics. I think they were in Brisbane, were they? Where's he from? 
Uh, he's from Melbourne. Okay. Yeah. 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 Boy. Um, um, was were they in Brisbane? They no, in? no. I think it was. Uh, where was the famous Kieran Perkins fifteen hundred meter race? No, I can't. Not anyway, Athens or Sydney. Tell us. We, no, we no, all know about Kieran. Ninety six. We all know about Kieran Perkins. How you know it was the race of the century, and he won when he shouldn't and didn't look like it. But there were other races going on in that race. Yes, and, and Daniel's a very quiet gentleman. He's a very self-effacing guy. He, he didn't want to say, but it's been publicly recorded since uh, that Daniel had posterior instability in his shoulder, which is an unusual form of instability. Most, most people come out the front. He came out the back. And he dislocated every lap that he, uh, that he tumble turned in. Hang on a minute. So I don't know how many tumble turners in a 1500. 30. 30. Work it out. He's smarter than I am, Greg. But... <laughs> So how's he getting it back in when he comes up from the tumble turn? You can turn? self-reduce it. So he, he would tumble turn, dislocate, reduce the arm and then swim. Not not ideal for a swimmer whose um, the ability to move is based around the uh, using your arms for propulsion. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and Daniel put up with a lot of injury over time. He had a very hypermobile body, so he had a lot of injuries uh, through his career. Uh, but it didn't stop him from uh, at one stage uh, meddling in – uh, short-term sprints, medium-term races and, and the long-term 1,500 uh, uh, meddling. So the there's Olympics. a guy, you can you can find a way to nurse him through for his dream, that is an Olympic final. Yes, and there are ways of doing that, yeah. both surgically and non-surgically. Uh, I think one of the other people you mentioned earlier who's a public um, entity is, is Pat Rafter who, who at the height of his career had problems with his shoulder and, and he couldn't have the full reconstruction he required. So he had a, a tidy up to try yeah. and get him through events and he was able to get to finals of big events after that. But it wasn't until he retired that he decided he would have a full reconstruction. Yeah. Is there, are there any facts, figures, uh, literature on which sport dominates your area of specialty in the world? Uh, no, because there are so many specific sports that are uh, country-specific country. yeah, right. so that... In America, NFL football is what it's all about for um, for a lot of shoulder problems. Um, in uh, Europe, soccer, uh, you know, so there's lots of different sporting specialties. And, you know, Melbourne, whilst it's the home of AFL, there's a lot of other sports going on. So um, I, I enjoy treating a lot of different sports people, not just uh, AFL footballers, but, uh, mm. you know, I just see more of them. Now you've got a host of sports. How many hours a week would you spend working? Uh, We're all doing a 38-hour week, by the way. How many are you doing? I spend maybe about 60. Yeah, that, it's it's absolutely incredible. So what would be the breakup between surgery and patient hours, consulting patients? That, that's more than just those two, actually. So uh, surgery I would spend probably about uh, something like 25 hours, Um Patient consulting and seeing patients, uh, it would make up another twenty-five hours, and that'd be ten hours of administration and and research. I do a fair bit of publishing um, because it's an interest of mine. That will be something I'll do when I retire. Be the little old man in a white coat with a cup of coffee outside the research centre. And right. um, uh, in in the interim period, you sort of have a mix of what you do. 
on the topic of work, so you don't work for a particular hospital or yourself. You work for the Melbourne Orthopaedic Group, is that right? Or yeah, I'm part of the Melbourne Orthopaedic Group. We're all individual practices, yes. but but we work in a in a combined Common. group, and I'm very lucky to be in in a group that's very well recognised and and. Uh, well reputed and and with colleagues that I trust and, and so, so where would you operate or consult out of? So I mostly operate out of the Avenue, which is a Ramsey Hospital in Windsor in Paran, and that's been there for forty or fifty years, I think, going yeah. for a long time, and uh, in various different iterations. Um, and I've worked at a couple of other smaller hospitals in in, in the interim. Um, uh, the group actually spreads itself around to various different hospitals, not just one hospital. Uh, but we have a, an alignment with uh, Ramsey's uh, working at the Avenue. Shoulder replacements become a big deal. Um, knees and hips are really well advanced now. They've been doing them for Certainly years. Certainly hips are. I think knees may be less so. They're a harder joint to get really uh, right. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that hip replacements, I think, have almost been cured. I think, yeah, they uh, have. I think you can do a hip replacement. Well, I don't, but, but the hip surgeons that do them can do them on very young uh, men and women and, and expect it to last their lifetime. Why? Because the materials are better? Yep. Um, ceramics become very, very uh, much a part of uh, hip replacements. And I think uh, nowadays I think most hips can be replaced in a safe manner, in a fast manner, in a, in a, in a very secure manner. So shoulders, a mate of mine had one done a, a, a couple of weeks ago, Wayne Carey, are they still in the embryonic stages? No, of- sh- shoulders have come of age a lot in the last... 20 years. Uh, there are different types of shoulder replacements and, and uh, nowadays there's a thing called a reverse shoulder replacement which is very much taken over. Not that that's necessarily ideal. Reverse shoulder replacements are ones where your rotator cuff's not working properly and the problem, the good part about them is also the problem with them. Um, they don't use a rotator cuff and so you can get elevation without a rotator cuff but they don't have as good a function overall as an anatomic shoulder. But um, if you've got a 90-year-old in front of you and they only want one operation ever because it's a high risk, then you'll probably consider doing a reverse as a one-off operation because you don't want them to have to come back for anything else. Whereas with an anatomic shoulder, you get better function. So if you've got someone who's going to try and uh, uh, you know play with the kids and do some general sport, then an anatomic shoulder is the best way to go. Nowadays, we have even newer materials and there's a pyrocarbon material available now that I've been putting in people as young as 28 with shoulder replacements. And uh, and we hope that they will last forever. Do we know? No, I don't know that yet. Yeah. Um, but we've been putting them in for, for over a decade now. Because age has always been a big barrier with replacements of any kind, hasn't it? For two it? reasons. One, they've got to last longer until they die. But but secondly, they actually want to use it more. So if you put it into a, someone who's playing a lot of yeah. sport, an impact sport, they want to go back to that sport. So my knee replacement, I know this is not your field of expertise, but you work with people that do plenty of them. David Young's just one of those. Would you Do you reckon you'd, they would say to me, Look, you're okay to walk, you're okay to play golf, but it's like a tyre. It's eventually going to wear out. So do as little as you can or would you no. encourage to do as much as you can? I think uh, all replacements have been um, updated immensely over the last couple of decades. And now plastics, which are the things that wear out, are much better than they were. So the wear products are, are less. The pace of wear is less. And uh, the impact absorption of these joints is better. Um, in the knee in particular, I know from colleagues 
uh, doing knee replacements that, that they now have different alignment measurements that they use. Computers and robots are used to get them in, in as good an alignment as possible, possibly even better than what they started because wow. some people's knees wear out because they're in the wrong alignment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we all know that bow-legged little old lady yeah. that walking down the street that, 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 yeah. that has to have her knees done for that reason. And now they can do them so that you can probably run a marathon, I think. Gee. Uh, yeah. No, I was just going to ask, while you were talking about like a shoulder replacement, would you mind talking us through like a step-by-step process, maybe narrowing it down to the day? So we've consulted our patient and we require a replacement. What does the day look like in terms of... Or the operation itself. So currently most of my shoulder replacements come in the night before just to get a couple of last-minute tests done. And so they come up to the operating theatre in the morning. Um, They're seen by the anaesthetists before they come to theatre. They're the people Uh, who knock you out. They're the people who knock you out. And and I'm very lucky in having really quality You've got to trust them, don't you? You have to trust them. And, And what's more... You know, there are there are better anaesthetists than other anaesthetists. I'm very lucky in that all the anaesthetists that I use are capable of doing what are called blocks where they can make your arm numb. In fact, 40% of my shoulder replacements are done with a patient not completely asleep, so they have a nerve block to make their arm numb. And, and then they fully have open them up. Fully open them up, oh. replacing pieces with them awake. Could they look across and say, no, no, no. no. They're still <laughs> right there. We but, don't like them to breathe on the wound and, and, and put bugs in there. That's not so good. We're going to come back to the anaesthetics, but keep going through the yep. day. So then the, they come into the operating theatre. We have a, a fantastic team of people in theatre. So there's a theatre tech that, that uh, helps put them in the right position on the table, and that can take uh, one minute or 20 minutes. So you've got to get them in the right position so that they uh, can have their operation done safely and securely and not have things falling off and bits in the wrong place. Arms. Uh, not just the arms, but, I mean, they've got to be safely in the position on yep. the table. They have to have their head and neck looked after so that they're, you know, for example, someone that's had a neck surgery, you know, wants to have a shoulder operation, they've got to be safe so that they're not going to This is all because they're knocked out. You're not getting any feedback on the patient, so this is no, why you've got to be careful. They're not going to chat you and say, no, yeah. that's a funny position. Yeah. So once they're in position, uh, you you have a, a timeout where everyone checks everything to make sure it's the right arm on the right patient on the right day and the you, right. So you do those checks. Yeah, all those checks are done, <laughs> yeah. and they're done multiple times. And and you know we used to laugh about it a bit more, but everyone's a bit more on board with it now because the fact is you can't afford to have mistakes oh. made, and so patients are you know sometimes they're a bit oblivious to that and make a funny remark oh why are you doing that they've already marked my shoulder well I'm just checking again yeah. because I'm going to do it so, <laughs> um, and then uh, in the operating theatre they get uh, cleaned up with a, a prep a preparation that sterilises the, the skin most of them in on a shoulder I tend to like to have them shaved some people don't like them to have shaved there's issues about um, there's issues about the um, bugs that uh live on your skin and in the shoulder there's special bugs which are actually resistant to some antibiotics so we need to know which ones are around. So, so we're they, trying to minimise infection. Absolutely yeah. and it, it's critical that infection is, is not a, 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 a big factor. player in, mm. your, in your practice. So then uh, they're in position we put drapes all around them and cover them up. Uh, we have a special positioner that puts their arm in the right position so that you can move it around during the case. And then uh, you have an assistant. So this, because I grew up in an era of sports medicine, most of my assistants are actually sports medicine doctors. So, so they're high, highly qualified themselves. Absolutely. And, and, not um, a nurse. 
It's not a nurse. I have a nurse as well. Yeah, right. Uh, A a scrub nurse, and my scrub nurse is absolutely legendary and and unbelievably good. What's her name? Uh, Wendy. What, does she scrub better than anyone else? She she scrubs up better than (laughs) anyone else. Big shout out to Wendy. (laughs) Yeah, so Wendy uh, has worked in the hospital for 30 years and and, um, uh, she knows the operation as well as I do. I've taken Wendy to India to, to demonstrate the operations that I do, a shoulder replacement in India. I've taken one of my other nurses to Thailand to do others. So we trust our nursing staff very much, but we also trust them for a reason because they're very skilled. So how many people in the room? So probably about eight in the room. There's a a big crew. Yeah, they all have jobs that that, uh, help during the procedure. Um, I take photos during the operation, so we have to get the lights and the inline cameras in the right position so that the patients can understand the operation later. Um, Does the patient have access to those if yes, they want? Yes, I give them. Yep. I give every patient right. that the photos work. Yep. We have every now and again an occasion where the camera stops working or yep. the computer stops working, but mostly yep. we have yep. uh, shots for all the patients, and that means they understand the operation a little better if I can explain it to them, which yep. I do. I like yep. to do in the post-op period. So just... So then the actual operation starts, you cut into them. Um, In shoulder replacements, you have to cut a tendon at the front of the joint. Now, there are some uh, surgeries where we're trying to work out how not to cut the tendon, um, but for most of them nowadays, we still have to cut that tendon. So what I tell patients is that the tendon is the door of the surgery. You open the door, you pull the bits out, put the new bits in, and you shut the door. The door has to heal. Yeah. So you sew up that tendon at the front, but if that doesn't heal, they don't get good function. Yeah. And that's critical. So, you know, you mentioned Wayne Carey earlier on. So he had a very thin tendon because he'd had so many operations on it previously yeah. during his sporting career that uh, that we had to be fairly safe with that. So I had to be a little more careful to protect that tendon, mm. um, which I'm sure he was extremely happy yeah. about having yeah. to not have it used for a longer <laughs> no, time. He's very happy with it. Um, so... Uh, the procedure takes um, an average for, well, surgeons have varied. Because I've got such a great team, I would say we average about an hour to an hour and a quarter. That seems quick. Yeah. But the operations can take up to three hours to do. Yep. And it depends on bits of equipment, types of prosthesis. Some prostheses have special guides, uh, computerizations used to guide where they go. Some have navigation. There's one shoulder replacement that is not my uh, preference at the moment, but uh, people are using navigation to put it in. So, yeah. you spoke uh, about before the sixty-hour work week. How do you go doing something I, I so important? It's to 80, by the uh, way. Under fatigue, potentially, um, with something that's so finite. Any every detail counts. Like, how are you doing that? How do you stay on for that whole surgery? Uh, probably caffeine, a, adrenaline. Caffeine yeah. <laughs> helps. Um, I I must say uh, as as I'm told on a regular basis that I um, sleep like the dead. Um, <laughs> I bet. And, uh, and I suppose uh, it's important to recognise the contributions or the sacrifices that are made by people around you because I do have to concentrate while I'm doing what I'm doing. It's interesting that there are different surgeons for different areas. There are some surgeons that love the consulting and the liaison and the people interaction but get a bit more nervous in theatre and there are some surgeons who are absolutely in their element in theatre, a yeah. bit more nervous in the in the mm-hmm. consulting room. So everyone's a little bit different about the way they do things. So it's You sound different. like you're a performer. You're a- uh, I, I like operating. Yeah. I, I, I operate for half a day each day of the week that I work and the only reason I don't operate all day is because if I operate all day, I'd have to consult all day another yes. day 
and I'd commit Harry Kiri if I had to consult all day. Yeah. Uh, this, just taking you back a little bit on the day, so good now and you say how important it is to absolutely, implicitly trust the ones that you work with. Are they so good that in a minor thing like I had a carpal tunnel done um, a couple of weeks ago that for such a small minor surgery that they can put exactly the right amount of whatever it is goes into you that you wake up almost, you know, you say I need 15 minutes to do this, oh, bang, I'm awake in 17 minutes. Is that – can they be that particular? Uh Yes and no. Local anaesthetics used for a lot of operations and, and for carpal tunnels, you would use local for a fair bit of it. Um, but I think that lasts often for overnight, you know, so they have pain relief in the post-operative period. These nerve blocks that I use, some surgeons don't like using nerve blocks because there are risks to that. So you've got to trust your anaesthetist not to bruise the nerves or damage the nerves when they do the blocks. Um, I'm, I'm, again, lucky that I have anaesthetists who are very good at doing that. Um but uh, when the nerve block wears off, they get a bit of a kick of pain. So often you need to keep me in hospital until that all wears off. Yeah. I don't like people going home with a nerve block. Yeah. It is interesting. And we spoke about Wayne Kerry before. And he was a guy, when I viewed him as a footballer and uh, watching him come in and out of treatments, he, he, he could cope with – he could cope and play under extreme pain du- duress. Is that – a decision that you also make for athletes as to how they hand, how they can handle if 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 surgery can be put off because they can handle the discomfort that comes with it is that a factor in absolutely yeah and I think uh, every athlete performs with pain, no doubt, and if you treated every uh, niggle that they had. Uh, a, you'd be doing too much operating and B, they'd be spending more time in the operating theatre than they would yeah. on, the, on the field. So the, uh, the I mentioned sacrifices in the medical field, but, you know, athletes sacrifice a lot to be able to do what they do. And I think um, people forget that they've, they've got immense talent, but they have to actually work through lots of things as well. It's not just talent that gets people on a, on a field as an as a excellent athlete, they've, there's lots of other things going on in their lives. They've got their personal lives. They've got their business lives. They've got to make a living while they're doing it. So mm. there's a lot of things that they have to go through and you have to tap into that. So, you know, if you've got a, a person uh, who's sitting in front of you and I say, okay, what sport do you do? And, and you know, an 18-year-old kid will say, well, um, uh, I play footy, I go water skiing, I, um, I do a bit of gaming. And, and you say, what's your passion because you need to know which one's the passion before yeah. you work out what they're going to do with it. I mean, I, I, I did say to – and I'm honest to people that, that I think you sometimes need a backup plan if you're not going to make it. Yeah. I said to a young golfing kid uh, f- several years ago when he came in with his dad, he, he came down from Sydney and, and um, I needed to do an operation that was a, a bit off off piste, I suppose. Of course, it's not a, it's not a, a mainstream operation. And I said to him, you know, you want to do golf, you want to be a professional golfer, but what's your plan B, you know, because you're only one injury away from retirement. And he said, no, no, I'm going to be a golfer. And his dad said, oh, he's going to be a golfer. <laughs> and I said, we've got to have a plan B. And I started to get a bit, hang on, yeah. you, you've got to have a, an idea of this. Anyway, uh, five years later, he won a PGA event in America. 
And uh, I got a text uh, saying, so much for plan B. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Speaking of um, aspirations, you just seem like you absolutely love sport. Did you have aspirations as a, as a young guy wanting absolutely. to play sport? Yeah. Yep. Thought I was going to be a legend in, in something. Didn't know what. So when I was at school, um, uh, I, I tried a lot of sports. Um, it's interesting. I, I went back and gave a talk at my old uh, school some years ago. So and you, they, you were out of Trinity? Trinity, yeah. Yep. And um, and they asked me for a CV and a curriculum vitae. You write all your articles you've published and yeah. all the bits of, you know, jobs you've done. And I mean, they're not interested in that. A bunch of school kids, they're not interested in that at all. And I thought, well, what are we going to write for a CV? So I wrote 19th man football, 12th man cricket, 6th man basketball. Because <laughs> that was my school career of, of sport. I was just nearly wannabe, not quite there. Yeah. So I have to give credit to my mother, who's who's 93 now, but she drove me to every bloody sport known to man to find yeah. something I was useful at. And I ended up doing slalom canoeing, which is, you know, if you got to the end of the race, you'll probably got a medal because there's no one else in it. That is a niche sport to get into. Yeah, very niche sport. <laughs> were you doing that down at Dites Falls? Or? Yes, Dites Falls. <laughs> yeah, we're doing all of those places and, and – um, we went to the Mittermitter and the Mitchell and yeah. trying to get my mother to drive up to the Mitchell as a single mum <laughs> and camp out in the nowhere. We'd be, you'd be loving Jess Fox at the moment then. Well, Jess the Fox has taken it to a whole new level, yeah. hasn't she? And, and a slalom canoeing has come of age. It's, it's become a major sport. Mm. But, you know, when I did it, I, I mean, we, my school teacher drove me to uh, Tully in North Queensland and, and I, I got a bronze medal for finishing the event you know I was, I, I was pretty happy with that and I got all right at it I mean we ended up uh, the, the national team at that time was a pretty small group and uh, they had it in the Olympic Games for a little while and they had it in the Commonwealth Games but the Commonwealth Games in New Zealand in 74 um, when they cancelled out of the Olympics because it was too expensive they decided to dump it from the that one as well so they had a uh, what do they call it a um, a guest competition for <laughs> for slalom canoeing. So I went in that. that but I was in the guest competition. Um, I want to ask about Shane Warne. Now, I was reading an article the other day. Uh, I'm pleased for you. Yeah, I don't read many. But he had, I reckon he's, book. he's had more than half a dozen operations on everything to do with what cricketers do and in particular his, uh, his specific uh, thing of bowling. How hard was it to keep him, like the, one of the greatest cricketers of all time, probably – one of two greatest cricketers in Australia, maybe three if you include Ponting, Bradman and Warren, um, to keep him on the on the track and keep him performing. Because he had real shoulder and finger issues, didn't yeah. he? I have to say I didn't really know what was going on with Shane Warren when he was coming out of nowhere to, to start him. I was in England training. Yeah. And uh, and Germany and America. I, I did a lot of travelling. I did two and a half years of training overseas. And and when I got back, you know, this chubby, blonde-headed kid was sort of out and about. And uh, when he he hurt his finger, and um, due to uh, probably a relationship with one of the sports medicine guys, because you know it's often due to who you know, not what yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, I got asked to see him for a finger problem, and he he, he was spinning too hard on the, on his ring finger and he'd stretched up a ligament. Really? And so I said, oh, well, I think you ought to tighten it up. I thought that would be pretty straightforward. I wasn't too fussed about that. That <laughs> was okay. 
And uh, and then he got a couple of other opinions, which I think it was pretty smart to do, but they all said, oh, no, don't operate on that. Oh, no, no, take nine months off, take 12 months off. Right. He didn't want to take he time off his time, sport, yeah. didn't have it already. Yeah. So uh, a, a, a mate of mine, a colleague from Adelaide, gave another opinion and he um, had the operation. I did the operation. Uh, but my secretary talked him into uh, coming in with a false name into into the uh, into the operating theatre. I've got to tell you this story about the first operation because um, this so is so came, typical, warning. So he came in under the fake name, and and nobody knew he was in the hospital, uh, which is interesting because I'm not sure that's what warning is about, to be honest. So anyway, the day before the surgery, I, I had to see another young bloke, and and I think it's publicly known that I, I treated this guy. It was a guy called James Hurd. Oh, yeah. And uh, he, had a, of him. he had a finger that dislocated. <laughs> he kept dislocating every time he straightened his finger. So it was, it was a dump. I remember that. I remember him showing me that. And uh, and so he needed to operate on. So I said, oh, I'll put you in the next day. So I got both of them on the one list. So I drive into the hospital the next morning and there's a bloody massive Plethora. car park full of people oh, no. with microphones and cameras and stuff. They're all for, for James Hurd. None of them there for Shane Warne. Shane Warne. But, <laughs> but a window opens up up on the first floor and out pops Ed and says, oh. g'day to one of the, the reporter friends. And he says, uh, hey, what are you doing here? I'm having an operation too. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Warning, come on. <laughs> yeah, I was pretty nervous that day, I can tell you. Wow. That, but, because, that, I mean, that, that, that puts pressure on you. Yeah. I mean, your balls are on the line. Yeah, but as I said, I didn't know him as well as I maybe later got to know Shane. And, and uh, he became a friend. He was a very, very... A great, great great man, Shane, yeah. Um, but he had problems with his shoulder. I, I, I to this day, am uh, still a, uh, a little saddened about what happened with the World Cup because I did an operation on his shoulder specifically to allow him to bowl in the World Cup. And he's a leg spinner. So leg spinners internally rotate their arm. Yeah. They don't tend to dislocate. And so he fell over in the field diving for a catch and dislocated his arm. Oh. So I just washed him out. I did what I did with um, with a St Kilda footy player this yeah. year and uh, and got him back to, to bowling early. And, in fact, he got back to be able to bowl for the World Cup. But there were people out there saying the only way he's going to bowl in the World Cup is if he's on the, you know, on the drugs. And he wasn't. He was never on the drugs. Well, I mean, yeah. it, it, he did take just one diuretic because he thought he might look better for his... Yeah. Photos. So I'm <laughs> saddened by the fact that he uh, was taken out, you know, uh, of the World Cup on on the drug thing due to yeah. an error. It was just just a mistake. Yeah. And uh, it wasn't anything that he was trying to do. He wasn't trying to cover up other drugs or anything like that. Back in the um, back to the day in the life of the surgery's done. Do you crack a can and go home, or how long are those patients staying in for? The patients stayed for about three days after a shoulder replacement. They stay overnight after most yeah. normal reconstructions. I, I keep them one night after. But I get my fingernail off. I demand to stay. Yeah, <laughs> you, you want the. I reckon want... they say there's no beds available for you. <laughs> so most of them stay overnight, and and I for a few operations need to to have a drain in there just to drain any bleeding that, that bruising that comes out overnight, um, and they go home the next day. I I the days sadly of uh, cracking a can at the end of the <laughs> list, which we used to do. I remember Vimy House in uh, yeah, in, yeah in I went Q, to Vimy at the end of a of a Friday list when I was assisting the the, the great John Bartlett. Yes, I had dinner with John last night. Did you? Yeah. Oh, he's a great guy. Yeah, great fella. Um, and uh, and uh, John used to, you know, have a few drinks, come out and a few nibblies at the end of Friday night uh, <laughs> operating. It was always pretty late, though, I can tell you. Yeah, he worked his ass off, that guy, didn't he? Yeah. 
yeah. and the recovery time for those patients for a reconstruction. So or a reconstruction, uh, an arthroscopic reconstruction, that's a sort of trendy thing that most people have been doing for the last 20 years, is something that you would um, normally have four months off before you're able to play contact sport. And we sort of try and chip a little bit and see if they can get back at three months, but it's not really that safe. It's probably a little bit risky. Um, but I've been involved in, in the development in Australia of an operation called the Latigé, which is a French operation, where you use a bone block at the front. And for Australian rules footballers, it's fantastic. The downside of a Latigé is that, is that you lose a little bit of range of motion permanently, but it's range of motion for rotation, so it's for throwers. So you couldn't be a baseball pitcher and have this Latigé operation, but you can be a footy player. And I've done, I think, 75 Australian rules um, AFL players with Latigé over the, over the last 20 years. Yeah, but well. um, uh, the, the recurrence rate after that's so low that we let them go and, and, and expect them to do very well. Yeah. The complications from them, they're worse than the complications from a scope. So you've got to weigh it up. You, you know, you've got to be careful about that. Yeah. So Tell me this. I- uh, but I've been, always been interested in orthopedics, probably because I've been in the sport and, and from Which day one. I'm to help you get on the program. <laughs> no. But I remember we in Australia seem to have an incredibly healthy amount of top-class orthopedic surgeons. Now, this goes back to the days of John Grant, Brian Davey, John Bartlett was just starting out, John Hart, all the Johns are involved. Is it my imagination that we in Australia are blessed with the best orthopaedic surgeons in the world? Or if you go to America or Germany, would you find a similar amount? Or is it the sports that we play in Australia that have attracted the orthopaedic surgeons? We seem to have um, more, more than other countries that are top quality. I think our training program's excellent. And I think the, the uh, spread between you know, the, the best and, and the not so best is actually not as great a spread in Australia. We have a lot of good surgeons and the training is good and we're a smaller country. I think you have to accept we're a smaller country and so you, you're more visible in, right, that, okay. in that country. If you go to America and you have a look at the number of professional sports people in America, it absolutely dwarfs Australia. Yeah. So there are a lot of guys that you might never have heard of and yet they're actually really good surgeons yeah, right. in a different area. In, in Europe, the soccer people get treated. And mind you, in Europe, it's interesting because they send them all to the unusual treatments, right. rooster comb, okay. all that sort of stuff. You know. <laughs> think, oh, that's interesting stuff. So uh, different sports have different levels of, uh, of people involved in them. It is interesting that we have some that we're especially interested in. So I have a, an interest in rowing. And, uh, and so I'm really aggressive with a couple of operations for rowers is a thing called intersection syndrome which is not that common but it happens when they overuse it but I, I do a procedure where I expect them to get back on the water two to three days after the operation oh. so they don't stop training they just keep training through and, and that's popular with the high level rowers because they don't lose form yeah. every time you put someone in a sling and rest them, they're wasting from day one, aren't they? Right. So the idea is to keep the form up by uh, getting them back into their activities quickly. And this has been the same in knees, Harris. This is why they, they put you on the machine after you've had an ACL and you, they're moving your knees straight, mm -hmm. straight away. This seems to have been a very prominent thing in the last 20 years in all sort of major operations. Well, rehab's been. become very important and, and uh, there are there's a whole industry in rehab 
um, so that we use those machines on elbows as well yep. to try and get them moving early in some operations. Yep. In some, they've got to be stable and it's important to protect them until they're stable. You're, so keep going. So I oh, know I was just going to ask about when you're talking about training and your training, when do the training wheels come off? Like what do you need to hit a certain checkpoint or when is a surgeon confident? Yes. Do you have to say, okay, I can, do, I can do this on my own? Well, that's, uh, that's a challenging question because there are people in, in every field, including orthopedics, where their confidence maybe outweighs their competence oh. and uh, they think a little early that they're a little bit good at everything. <laughs> um, and there are some that are a little late who never get their confidence even though they're very talented surgeons. Is it the individual's call or are Absolutely. they been Absolutely. Yeah. And, and there is, uh, therein lies the catch a little bit because yep. uh, we all know people are different and we all know people have different... Uh, 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 self-confidence and egos and you know they do say that for orthopedics the the um, requirements to get into orthopedics to start with was arrogance 101 <laughs> was the, uh, the first starting point <laughs> have you heard um, obviously you haven't been involved any but if you can share any any major sort of stuff ups or blunders by surgeons in your field oh, in, in and around the no world no names so, so so talking about uh, mine for this week is that what you'd like or... <laughs> <laughs> um, don't incriminate yourself no nah, look I'm not going to go into complications of no. people I, I think comp complications are things that happen to everyone and the fact is that you uh, you've got to deal with them as best you can we all get them don't don't mm. have anyone pretend or tell you that they never had a complication because they always happen. Yeah. It's how you deal with them that's important. And I think um, the surgeon that that uh, spends extra time to try and make sure that the patient gets the best outcome they can even after a complication makes him a better surgeon, I think. Good answer. Or a better clinician. Darren Mullane, a mate of mine in 1990, premiership, during the whole final series had a broken thumb going into the final series. Yep. They'd put him in plaster yep. during the week, take it out of plaster for the game. And he'd go and play with it. Is is would you recommend that? It, we're talking the elite level of sport where the guy is just minutes or weeks or days away from claiming his dream. Would you? Is that something you would say? Yep, we'll try and get you to the finish line. Uh, yes, but there are limits to how you do right. that. And uh, and you were talking about Wayne Carey earlier, mm. your friend. But Wayne recently talked about how some players probably wouldn't do some of the things that they yeah. would do if they knew what the outcome was going to be in the long term. Yeah. So True, very true. Uh, you do have to remember that there's a career after sport. And so, you know, if you've uh, – Darren Milano, uh, you know, we, we, yeah. he's not here with us to, uh, yeah. to, to show us his thumb, but I suspect he probably would have had a pretty – Ratto thumb at the end of that. Yeah. Speak, yeah. Speaking of ratty um, sort of injuries, his hands, you've seen them. I'm sure you've done the carpal tunnel and all look that. Look at them. Have you seen fatter fingers? Is that arthritis? What is this? Oh, look at the mirror. Mine is looking. <laughs> at the same light. Light. But he can't <laughs> move them. Yes, well, he's got a little bit of a, a inflammatory grip, condition. I can't grip a tennis racket. So is that time. hereditary? Am I fucked no, as well? No. No, good. No, and, and <laughs> it's. It's uh, it's probably well actually there could be a hereditary component but oh, no. but he's probably got a systemic problem that's making him a bit stiff. I mean we all know people who are loosey goosey as they call it who are hypermobile and and have problems with that and and nowadays there's a real um, uh, leaning towards recognition understanding of people with Ehlers Danlos syndrome which yeah. is a syndrome 
mostly in in young girls where they're just so unstable they get problems mm. and they get problems with their lenses in their eyes that are unstable with their heart uh, vessels are unstable yeah. so that's at one end and at the other end there's the Brian Taylors who are a bit too stiff in their joints and is um, that because of something or yeah, it's a, it'll be a systemic problem. I don't yeah. know what that problem is. Right. And, and in fact, I'm not sure everyone gets a diagnosis, I'm afraid. Yeah. You know, sometimes it's just, oh, you're stiff. Um, but there are people that, that have a lot of hassles with that. There are some weird conditions. One of my colleagues, Stephen Hall, who's who's uh, been a rheumatologist uh, of note for many years has uh, and has the IQ of about 300, um, What's a rheumatologist? Sorry, rheumatologist, someone that deals with joints and uh, and muscles and systemic problems like yep. that. So rheumatoid arthritis, for yep. example, and uh, psoriatic arthritis, and um, all of these uh, Ross River fever arthritis. You yeah. know, all of these conditions that affect you like that. Um, they're inflammatory conditions that affect the the muscles and the joints. And uh, rheumatologist deals with those and and. Uh, hard to deal with too. In fact, there's new drugs coming out every fortnight to deal with them, uh, which also means there's drugs that are, you know, having good effect and not good effect on them. Mm. Are we, that is you, are you travelling the world? I know, I know you've got a lot of conferences around the world. You speak and you obtain information. Are we constantly comparing notes around the world to make sure that we here in Australia are getting the absolute latest in technology, etc.? I think Australia is probably near the forefront of that because Australians have always accepted we are too far from everywhere else and so we travel. Yeah. And so Australians are set travel. So I go to conferences, I probably go to maybe three to four international conferences a year and um, and I take my wife and try to get a couple of days on the end. Why, by the way, just before you go into what you why are they always at beach locations, those conferences? No, uh, it's important that the air is good <laughs> for, for the listening. Um, I, uh, I just gave a talk recently on a, uh, a, a uh, conference, a, ortho, a high-tech orthopedic conference on an Arctic cruise ship. <laughs> um, and uh, I have to tell you, I, I gave a talk which uh, I thought was pretty good, but um, – about halfway through the talk, the captain announced there was a blue whale off to the left of the. I was suddenly talking to me and nobody else. <laughs> so. I've got, um, I think it's a bad habit or it's just a habit. I want to clear it. This is a basic question, by the way. I crack my fingers a lot. Is yes. this bad? Yes. It is bad. Yes. Oh, I read somewhere it was okay. No. So talk me through why it's bad because I'm sure lots of people do it. So yeah, every time you crack your knuckles, you're, it, you're creating a vacuum in the joint. That's yep. how you do it. And then you're, you know, sucking the vacuum back in yep. when you crack. Um, but the problem with that is you're actually slipping the joint a little bit. So oh, no. if you were someone who is susceptible to wearing the cartilage out or who had stiff joints, for example, like perhaps someone on the other side of the table, <laughs> that would be a bad activity. So to no do. more cra- Stop I'm gonna, cracking I'm going to write this down. Yeah. Don't Stop crack, cracking fingers. Don't yeah. crack fingers. You see, if That's you'd bad been good at school, Harrison, do you I, see what I you could have achieved? I crack them like so much. So uh, it's... There are people that do that in the shoulder as well. There are people that I actually do my put neck. their shoulders is it, out. Is it the same for neck and ankle and all of that? Yeah, you're in real trouble. I, I crack everything. Yeah, yeah this is not good. Um, <laughs> we might have to. Is there a most common injury when we wrap, just before we wrap that, is, is there a most common injury from the shoulder down? That's question one. And question two, I don't know why I ask two at a time, it just dawned on me. Someone has a collarbone break or a, an arm, arm break and you put a plate and screws in there to hold it together. Is it true 
this myth, is it a myth, that it is the moment you do that, it is stronger than the actual bone? Uh, can be. Oh. I say can be because you've got to put it on properly. You need to use compression to compress the bones together. But if you put it on in the way that they want you to put it on and the bone's not comminuted, which means multiple cracks in the one bone, uh, you can get a bone that is actually stronger. And classically, oh. the collarbone is the one. And uh, great discussion of a, of a very common injury, and especially in this new era of cyclists and mammals. Yes. Um, uh and, and in that situation, if you fall off a bike and break a collarbone and you put a plate on it, the plate and the collarbone now are stiffer than the normal bone. Right. It doesn't have its bendability. So technically, technically, the moment that that operation is complete and you've had a, you've, you're really happy with a really good fixing, yes. technically that bike rider could jump back on the bike tomorrow. So what is it that And stop- they do. In the Tour de France, yeah. they do that. So what is it that stops... Footballers being able to play tomorrow is it cope? Is it the coping mechanism or no? Uh, you've got to get a wound to heal psychologically. You've got to get a wound to heal. It's not good if it gets infected. Yeah. I, I once treated an Eston player many many years ago, who um, who the club doctor tried to not let anyone know that he'd broken his hand because it happened on an evening game and he wanted to keep it a secret and have him play the next week. So he played his hand and he played the next week except someone punched him in the wound Ooh. and opened the wound and he got an infection. So oh. he missed a couple of weeks, which is what he would have missed with a broken hand anyway. Yeah. But he, you know, it was a bit of a waste of the plate then. So you've got to be careful not to have an infection as a result. So in a collarbone, um, it, is, it is stronger, but it's only as strong as the, as the construct overall together. Now, in the collarbone nowadays, we use titanium plates. The reason we use titanium alloy plates is because they're a little bit flexible and the flexibility means that you can um, uh, you can get a bit of give in it before it breaks. Yep. So I have actually published an article on AFL players having collarbone breaks and, and some of my sports medicine colleagues like to put them back very early. So it takes six weeks for the bone to heal. Everything in orthopedics is six yeah. weeks. One orthopedic unit, six weeks. Yeah, right. So it should be six weeks before they go back. But, of course, uh, some of them go back a bit early. And uh, and the, the problem with that is I'll give you a good example. Uh, I think it's public information that Lin Jong had a clavicle fracture playing yes. in Perth in the finals. I was there. In yep. the great uh, year of, uh, of the Bulldogs uh, winning. And um, he came back two weeks later, which was preliminary final week, but he played in the VFL in their grand final. And... Uh, if you recall, it was entertaining that day because the uh, medical team of the day decided to tape his other shoulder. Oh, yes, that's uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I recall some Casey players punching that shoulder pretty regularly during the game. It is absolutely amazing. But he decided well, – obviously the team decided he wasn't going to play in the grand final because they, they would have taken him off. He was best on ground. Um, but he took a screamer in the last quarter and he landed on the shoulder and uh, came off the ground – and he bent his plate. So he had no pain. There's the gift. Uh, The club Mm. doctor uh, was Gary Zimmerman, and he uh, he left it alone, did not have to have any more surgery, just waited for it to heal, had the plate taken off a year later, no problem. Wow, that is amazing. But he didn't play But he bent the plate. So unfortunately, in that article that I've written, we've got a few bent plates in AFL players. Most orthopedic surgeons have one club that they particularly like, and 
perhaps even support, and so they really look after the players at those clubs. Uh, what, you mean a bit better than everybody yes. else? Yes. No, I, no, I don't no, mean no. in better surgery. I mean just get them in quicker, see them quicker. Yeah, good I, Have you got one club? No, or no, 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 Your Honour. <laughs> no, no, I don't. <laughs> Greg, it is bloody fascinating to have someone of your ilk in here, someone that's world-class at what they do is pretty amazing. We're lucky in Australia. We're particularly lucky here in Melbourne with our orthopaedic surgeons, I said before, but you are known around the world. And and Harrison, if you ever have a broken arm or collarbone, Greg is the guy I would want to see you. Yeah, I'm going to get him to look at my finger after this. That's mine. But um, (laughs) Greg, we we appreciate it. We know you're that busy. And to give us an hour is just amazing. Thank you very much. Greg Hoy. Thank you all.